We have been looking for wisdom, and we're looking for wisdom in all the right places because we're going to the Old Testament wisdom literature books. And so we are looking for wisdom in Job. And in Job, we find wisdom in our suffering. And we look for wisdom in the Psalms. And in the Psalms, we find wisdom in our worship. And then we look for wisdom in Proverbs. In Proverbs, we find wisdom in our decision-making. And then Ecclesiastes, and we find wisdom in our purpose. But in all those books, it all boils down to one repeated statement. Does anybody remember what it is or something like it? The fear of the Lord. Yeah, fear God. Thanks, Nancy, for just shouting it out. Uh, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That was the idea. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so whether you turn to Job or Psalms and Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, whether you're facing suffering or worship or decisions or wrestling with your purpose in life, fear God. That's your starting point. That can be difficult. I think we want a more elaborate answer. We want something written in the sky that we can follow. We want something that feels good or at least feels better. But fear God, that's the key. And so if we're looking for wisdom, the starting point is to understand what it means to fear God. In order to get us along that path, one clue that we have is that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they became very afraid of God. Why? Because they did not fear God. So being afraid of God and fearing God are very different things. So when we say fear God, we're not saying, you know, be terrified of him. We're saying have this respect for his awe, for his power. Have this this sense of confidence, though, in his love for us. And in this way, we fear God and we do what he tells us because he has our best interests at heart. And so that's the starting point for wisdom, no matter the situation we're facing. The starting point for wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But then we come to the Song of Solomon, and it's a little bit different because there's no fear, there's only love. Every page we turn to, we can't escape it. There's love everywhere in this book. I don't know why I have to say it like that every time, love. I even have it uh, in all caps on my notes. It is one of the most uncomfortable books I think we have in the Bible. And as good Christians, we don't always know what to do with it, right? I mean, we don't take a lot of Sunday school verses from the Song of Solomon. Just think about it for a moment. Imagine your child came home and you said, so what did you learn today, Tommy? What's the Sunday school verse? Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. You're like, is your teacher Italian? Kiss me and kiss me again. Uh, what's going on here? Or there's awkward verses that just never really pop up in my Bible verse of the day from Bible Gateway. I don't know if you have that app, but you get a verse of, you know, in the morning you can read it and get your day started right. I've never seen this verse. Strengthen me with raisin cakes. Did you know that was in the Bible? <laughs> it's there. Strengthen me with raisin cakes. Cakes. Refresh me with apples, for I am weak with love. Right? You don't see that popping up. And I have to go here, even though it's uncomfortable, but it talks a lot about this. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. Never understood that image. I haven't thought about it too much. But it's, uh, it's difficult. Bambi and breasts in the same sentence. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this book? What's it doing in the Bible? I mean, it's very obvious as we read through it that 
It's kind of this collection or anthology of ancient Near Eastern love poetry. That's very clear to us, and it's beautiful as you read through it. But what's it doing in the Bible? It doesn't even mention God. As you read through it, you don't, you don't see this great tribute to God's love. It's just right at this level. What's it doing here? Is it about sex or Jesus? Amen. Thank you, John. <laughs> it's a difficult thing, isn't it? I would say it's about both. And uh, you've probably never heard sex and Jesus in the same sentence, but it's about both. There's a celebration here that we can really understand. So even today, in modern Judaism, uh, this song is read on the Sabbath during Passover. And it's a very important part of the Passover celebrations. And Passover, of course, marks the beginning of the grain festival, but also marks the exodus out of Egypt and out of slavery. And this is part of that celebration. In Jewish tradition, they read this as an allegory, an allegory that uh, talks about God and Israel. When we come to the church in Christianity, we've kind of followed in that tradition for the most part. And we see it as an allegory of Christ and the church, his bride in that sense. And we find this really in Paul's writing. Paul has this great uh, talk about marriage. And then after telling us all about marriage, he says, you know what? I'm actually talking about Christ and his church. And so there's a parallel here. As we get into Song of Songs, I think we can make that jump. And it's not too much of a jump to realize the relationship that God had with Israel and relationship of Jesus and the church. And we find that in all different kinds of ways. But in Christianity, one of the things we discover in the um, history of Christianity is that for some reason, the monks really loved the Song of Solomon. I don't know if it was their vow of celibacy or that they were cloistered away uh, for long periods of time, but they loved the Song of Songs. Bernard of Clairvaux, Cistercian monk about a thousand years ago, he wrote 86 sermons on this book alone. How? How do you do that? Can you imagine if I was preaching on the Song of Songs for a year and a half or more? <laughs> uh, you'd be, what is up with you? So there are interesting ways that we've tried to wrestle with this book and tried to uh, deal with it. Well, here's the bottom line for me. Regardless of what we do with it, it does teach us about true love. It teaches us about true love. It gives us a picture. It gives us words. It gives us language. It gives us feeling. It gives us emotion all around true love. And of course, as we learned from the Princess Bride, true love is the greatest thing in the world, except a nice MLT, a mutton, lettuce, and tomato, tomato sandwich, where the mutton is nice and lean and the tomatoes are ripe. If you watch Princess Bride, you might know that quote. True love. So what do we learn about love? from the Song of Songs. Well, I just want to focus on some of the verses that were read for us by Jane. And uh, these are the verses actually that were read at my wedding. So I should be living these out, right? And so I should know them well. First thing we learned about love from this summary section that Jane read for us. Love is possession. Now, I don't mean that love is possessive, as in uh, you're mine, and if anybody looks at you wrong, they're going to get it. It's not quite like that, but there's the sense of mutual belonging, mutual possession. 
And whether it's between a, a, a man and a wife or whether it's between friends, there's a sense of which we belong together. We have yielded something of ourselves to the other person. And they have a claim in some way on our lives. And that's the mutuality of possession in love. We see this in the verse that says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. That, that sense of I'm claiming you in some ways. Where it says in chapter 6, verse 3, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. There's a sense of belonging. But more than that, it's a sense of I have a, I have a right to claim you. And there's something in that capacity of love that we see, not only between a husband and wife, but also sometimes between friends that, are, that share a bond of love. I think that's why we see uh, uh, God talking about Israel being an adulteress at times, because there was this rightful claim that God had to Israel and rightful claim that Israel had to God. And God sometimes says to Israel, why are you sleeping around? You have me. And I have a right to have a rightful claim upon your life. And we see that even with, with us and our relationship with God today. So love has that quality of possession, of belonging, of almost ownership of one another. Okay, second thing we see in this verse, these verses. Love is also permanent. Love is strong as death. Love is strong as death. We had a, a funeral service here yesterday for Ray Johnson. And Ray passed away at the end of December last year, but we've been waiting till the time was right and people were available to have the service. But anytime you come to the service and you, you face that reality of death, it seems very permanent, does it? Now, now we know that through Jesus and the resurrection that there's something beyond the grave. But when you come to face death, it's very permanent. It's very fixed. That's the way it seems. And that's what the author is saying, that love is as strong as that. It's as permanent as that. The third thing it says about love is that love is passionate. In verse 6c, it flashes, are flashes of fire, a most vehement flame in the old translation. And so love is passionate. The root word of that, that word passion actually means to suffer. And so love suffers long. Love is willing to suffer. Love is willing to sacrifice. That's true love. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friend. That's love. That's what we're seeing here. Fourth thing, love is persevering. In verse 7, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. I've been watching some of the images coming out of the States and, and sometimes in India and other parts of the world of raging floodwaters. I'm always amazed at just how strong they are. You see whole houses being washed down this river. It's that strong. So the author is saying that even though there's a great flood, it can't drown love. No matter what we face, there's this, this permanence or persevering in love. And then the fifth one is this. Love is priceless. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly scorned. This is one of the, the verses that makes us think, maybe this isn't a relationship of Solomon with a young woman. Actually, if you see it and you read through the, the uh, poems uh, this afternoon, perhaps, you have some time and you read through Song of Songs, 
you might pick up that there's kind of three voices going on. There's the young woman and the young man, and then Solomon the king appears every once in a while. And it almost seems like Solomon is trying to buy her love or win her over, but she's so in love with this young working man, and it's their love that remains permanent. And she rejects the love of the king who wants to buy her love because if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly scorned. Love is priceless. So we learn something about love, something about the permanence of love. That's why when love is broken or when we feel that heartache of loss, it goes very, very deep. But it's not just about love. I think we're comfortable talking about love. Song of Songs pushes us a little bit deeper, something a little bit more difficult to discuss. Song of Songs also validates passion and desire. Two things that cause great suspicion in Baptist churches, right? Especially maybe during worship. Poor Samuel's up here trying to get us to be more passionate in our worship. At least say an amen. So I'm glad John's back. You hear an amen every once in a while. A little more passion in our Baptist churches. So passion and desire, it validates this. It gives us expression for desire. I think growing up, at least for me, maybe it's for you too, if we grew up in Christian circles, we were taught, maybe not overtly, but in certain ways, to not trust our desires. And for good reason, right? The, the whole culture says, follow your heart. And we say, wait a minute, that's a bad idea because the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And there's a truth to that. Adam and Eve, I mean, look what happened to them. It says in Genesis chapter 3, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. See where their desires led? Desire equals danger is sometimes what we find is the message uh, in the church. And so when it comes to our Christian faith, we're sometimes, I think, meant to be more like Spock, right? Rather than Captain Kirk, if you know the Star Trek analogy. Spock is logical and reasonable, and uh, that's where our faith is meant to be. Uh, Captain Kirk is impulsive and passionate and delivers his lines with stutter and pause. So we're meant to be more like Spock. We're meant to be more logical, more reasonable in our faith. Christian faith is about facts, not feelings. I think we've heard that so many times that we've come to distrust any desires that come up in us. It's not about how I feel or about my desires. Song of Songs, I think, redeems our feelings. Song of Songs gives expression to our passion and permission to desire. It actually takes us back to the garden. And that's the one consistent theme we find in the Song of Songs. You're wondering, where does this fit into the whole story? Well, what we find through the Song of Songs is a garden theme. And now we have a man and woman back in the garden, but their love is pure and their passion and their desires are actually authenticated by being in Scripture. And so we find this, this permission Song of Songs redeems our feelings. It provides us a, a holy outlet to explore and express desire. Now, there's still caution to be had. We still have to be careful. 
We don't just follow any desire that comes into our heart. That's not appropriate sometimes. Uh, there's also a way that we need to do this. I'm always amazed at the encounter that Jesus had in Mark chapter 10. There's two encounters back to back. Now, the first encounter is with two of his disciples, James and John. And he hears them talking. He hears them yakking away. And he interrupts their conversation and he says something very, very important. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What an interesting phrase for Jesus to say, what do you want? What do you want? What's your desire? What do you want me to do for you? Well, James and John say, well, since you're asking, <laughs> uh, we're, we're thinking that maybe when you come into your kingdom, uh, one of us can sit on the right and the other can sit on the left and we can share your power. Wouldn't that be great? What do you think, Jesus? And he says, you don't even know what you're asking. He doesn't even give them a direct answer, but the answer is no. We all know that, right? And so, but he asked them, what do you want? What do you want me to do? So interesting. Their desires were off track, but he still asked. In the very next part of the passage, another encounter, this time with a man named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is blind. He hears Jesus going by. He cries out, uh, son of David, have mercy on me. The disciples are upset. They don't want Jesus having any time with his blind beggar, but Jesus has the man brought to him. And he says the same thing to this man. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want? What's your desire? I mean, it would seem obvious, right? Uh, I'm blind. But Jesus still asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I would see. And Jesus gives him his sight back. But what's interesting to me is this question that Jesus asks. What's your desire? What's in your heart? What's, what's ruminating around? What, what do you long for? What are you missing? What do you desire? And sometimes I think the, the suppression of our desires in favor of logic, logic we, we don't get to be honest before God, and yet Jesus comes to us and says, what do you desire? Let me sort it out whether it's good or not. Let me, let me give you an answer whether that's going to be the right path for you or not. But express it to me. What do you desire? What's on your heart? What do you want? So, I, a number of years ago, my brother Alan, who's uh, older than me by probably 14 years, I guess, and he was a pastor for a time, and he was a church planter. I didn't know him growing up. I got to know him as I started in pastoral ministry because I went to him as kind of a mentor. I trusted him, and I appreciated his, his approach in ministry. I remember I was really wrestling with, with something, and I went to him for prayer. I expected him to do the normal Baptist thing. Well, let's pray together and, and have a sort of a generic prayer. But he paused for a moment. He put his hands on me and he said, what do you want Jesus to do for you? No, I've never heard that question before. It, it revolutionized my idea of prayer. What do you want Jesus to do for you? I'm like, is that allowed? Are you allowed to say, Jesus, I want this. This is my desire. And let him sort it out, whether it's good or bad or indifferent. And so there's this surfacing of our desires, I think, that comes from the Song of Psalms, uh, of Solomon, and, uh, and allows us to, to express this. So, in conclusion, where is the wisdom here? This is a wisdom book. Well, where is wisdom when it comes to our desires? Well, for that, I want to actually take us to Psalm 37. 
because there's great wisdom. The second half of the verse, Psalm 37, verse four says this, that God will give you the desires of your heart. What a fantastic promise. And some people just hold that, put it up on their fridge. God's gonna give me the desires of my heart. But there's a qualifying phrase that comes first, and some of you know it. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's the qualifying phrase, isn't it? Delight yourself in God. It kind of sounds like fear God. That's what we're saying. Delight yourself in God, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because our desires will begin to be aligned with the desires of God. Delight yourself first in God, and then the desires of our heart will follow in his will. St. Augustine said this, love and then do what you want. That's an interesting piece of advice, isn't it? Love and then do what you want. Uh, if you stop talking, you will stop talking with love. If you shout, you will shout with love. If you correct, you will correct with love. In other words, start with love. And if you love, then go ahead and do what you want because it will come from love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself and then do what your hearts desire because our desires will be aligned with God's intentions for us. So the Song of Songs teaches us about love and therefore it teaches us about God. Why? Because God is love. And so the Song of Songs directs us in that. In it, we learn that God is passionate about us. I think that's the other thing I want us to take away, that in this, God is passionate about us. There's a parallel we find in, in uh, Song of Solomon uh, chap or chapter 5. It says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. What do we hear in Revelation chapter 3? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? God is passionate about us. He pursues us. He, he wants to be in a relationship with us. He wants to share that sense of intimacy and belonging and trust. That's what God wants for us. And so as we conclude today, we need to know that we are desired by God. He desires us. We are known by God. We are loved by God. We are pursued by God. Or as Tony Campola would say, God carries your picture in his wallet. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Even though there's times when we scratch our heads and wonder, what are we to do with this? And yet we trust you. We trust your providence in preserving this for us. And we trust your spirit to lead us into all truth. But Father, as we've heard through the words today, we've heard about love. And as we think about love, we know that you are love. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you that even when we were enemies, that you loved us and that you gave your son for us. Thank you for your love. And we pray that you'd help us to love one another in the same way. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.